The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about privacy as a lost right. And we know that we've been worried about this for a long, long time. And we have a wonderful book that we're going to be talking about. And that is Privacy, the Lost Right by John L. Mills. And I am so thrilled to tell you a little bit about Professor Mills. He is the Dean Emeritus, Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Government Responsibility at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And he was Dean of the Levin College of Law at uh, the University of Florida, from 1999 to 2003. John served as Speaker of the Florida House of Representatives and served in the House for 10 years. He was a member of Florida's highly successful 1998 Constitution Revision Commission, and he was named its most valuable member. He has taught and made presentations at Cambridge University, Oxford, University of Warsaw, among others, and he's authored books, law review articles, and so much more. And of course, his last book, which I have right in front of me and I found to be fascinating, is called Privacy, the Lost Right. Now, as an expert on constitutional issues, he's been quoted in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, and more. And he's appeared on CNN, uh, NPR, ABC, BBC, Fox News, and other media, and he also produced an Emmy-winning show on the Florida Everglades. So we're so thrilled to have him all the way from Florida joining us, and thank you so much, John, for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for asking me. Well, I thought this book was just fantastic, and you describe vicious privacy intrusions on innocent people in your book, The Lost Right. Now, one that we know about right here in Laguna Niguel, I don't know if you know this, but that you were talking about the case of Nikki uh, Katsouris. Nikki's dad owned a restaurant that I used to go to all the time, and I knew the whole family. His daughter, his 17-year-old daughter's um, uh, mangled body, was take pictures were taken of her by the police and emailed to everyone on the internet. It just got circulated. And then, of course, her sister saw it and then her family saw it. So California courts, thank goodness, found this to be a horrific violation of privacy rights. Why don't you talk about what that kind of case means? We, we're obviously, with all of the um, pictures that can be transferred in a nanosecond, 
What does this all mean? What symbolizes the danger of uh, the Internet, that anybody who decides they want to abuse or hurt somebody simply needs to post a picture. In this case, as you described it, it was it was a horrible abuse by uh, actually officers who posted those pictures of a dead Nikki Katsouris uh, to their friends. And even though they that may have been eight or ten friends, we know what happens. Right. All of a sudden, it's a hundred, then it's ten thousand, then it's forty thousand, and the intrusion on their parents was and is horrific. Uh, and that's we have to understand that uh, we are more in danger now than we've ever been by the very nature of electronic intrusions, and the internet's just one of them. Exactly, and. There's, there's that balance between First Amendment rights and rights of the individual and the privacy rights. It's just, it's so confusing and, and so vague right now. It's, it's amazing. Now, in your own career, you've dealt with some really staggering privacy violations, including the family of Dale Earnhardt, and then most recently, that tragic death of, of the SeaWorld trainer in Florida, why don't you talk a little bit about those two cases and help my audience understand what those were really about? Dale Earnhardt died, as a lot of people may recall, at the Daytona 500. And immediately after, because it was an accident, of course, there is an autopsy. Right. And believe it or not, there are uh, folks that are interested in obtaining and publishing autopsy photographs. Uh, it was interesting. The mainstream press, and as you suggested, on the First Amendment is important. We need to protect the ability to publish newsworthy stuff, but an autopsy photograph is not in and of itself newsworthy. So while a number of the mainstream press were perfectly willing to accept the autopsy as written and not seek to publish photographs, some did. Yeah. And then there, there's the evolution of the blogs and those sites who specialize in publishing pi- pictures of dead celebrities. Mm. So we had to litigate that, and we ultimately won. Uh, the SeaWorld case is still ongoing, uh, and that to me was even a potentially greater intrusion because it was actually a video of Don Branshaw uh, that was taken underwater by SeaWorld, and fortunately that hasn't been released as of now. Yeah, yeah. Now, in that Dale Earnhardt case, he was considered a celebrity, so so what did did the court really find on that uh, in terms of his privacy rights? I think the important part was the written autopsy was accurate and, and depicted everything that uh, a member of the press would want to describe. As a matter of fact, uh, the members of the uh, what I would, I guess we'd call mainstream press, uh, mediated and negotiated this to the point where we agreed upon an expert to look at the photographs, look at the written autopsy report, and see if there was anything different. Right. If if the pictures added anything to the story, or if the autopsy report as written was fraudulent or incorrect. The mm. expert said no, the mainstream press accepted it. I see. I see. So I, I guess the issue is 
do these photographs, are they, if you balance the amount of intrusion against how newsworthy it is and how important it is for the public to see, then I think you get a, a, a proper result. I mean, those of us that are interested in privacy issues, we, we know that there are photos and there are pictures and there's information that the press needs and that are, in fact, newsworthy. But if that picture of a dead body, which um, we had a witness who had seen a dead body of her father uh, on an, one of these autopsy sites, and she said, it was my father gutted like a deer. Oh, yeah. And that's, what good did that do? Right. So uh, I think it's, you hope judges and legislatures, when they're view, viewing this policy, have some some balance. Right. And again, it gets back to that constitutional First Amendment right, doesn't it? And we have to kind of look at that in a different way than we've, than we've looked at it before. Well, I think that the technology has changed. Yes. In other words, it's different than having the local press. So technology makes it more available, but it also removes the judgment of the editor, the general counsel, individuals at a newspaper who used to have the ability to say no. And that doesn't happen if there's just a blog or a website that obtained something. Anybody can be a journalist now. Anybody Anybody can be a journalist. Right. Well, last November, the Supreme Court heard some arguments in in the case of the United States versus Jones, which raised the question about whether police may discreetly put GPS on our cars without first getting a warrant. So um, what do you think is going to happen with that case, and what will be the significance? I think a, a lot of folks are nervous about having uh, the government being able to place a GPS on anybody's car, anybody at any time for any period of time. As a matter of fact, a couple of those nervous people were Supreme Court justices. Uh, they they asked questions during the oral argument, uh, uh, one of which by, was by Justice Roberts. He said, does, it, does, that, does that mean, counsel, that you could put a GPS on my car? and leave it there for 24 hours a day and seven days a week. Yeah. And the council had to answer yes. Yeah, yeah. And didn't that didn't seem to make him happy. <laughs> so When it affects him personally, right? <laughs> right. So I, I've got to think that there will be some limits on this. Uh, the justification is that, hey, you're out in public, you're driving around, so somebody could follow you. But that, of course... Is not what happened. Right. You put an electronic device on somebody that will track them anywhere they go. And uh, I'm hopeful, and I think it actually will happen. There'll be some limits. I mean, that goes to the whole issue of the Fourth Amendment and our, and our right, you know, f- to, to have a warrant. If, if someone believes that they have reasonable or probable cause, that they should at least be able to get a warrant. I don't, I just don't get it. I mean, if there's an exigent circumstance, they should at least have to get a warrant afterward immediately, something that, like that. That's exactly right. That uh, that and I and I talked to some law enforcement folks in um, a number of places, and they said, "Well, you know, if we really need to follow somebody, we can probably get a warrant." Yeah. Uh, we if if somebody is dangerous, if it's imminent, if we have probable cause to believe that they are. 
a drug dealer, a gun dealer, or dangerous in some way, they can get a warrant. Yeah. And as opposed to just putting a GPS on a car and following it without need for any review. Yes. So it's 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 symbolic of a lot of the technological problems. And I mean, as you know, when you look at these things, if the technology exists, um, people will use it. You know what would scare me if 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 the Supreme Court allowed this to happen, that what would keep them from um, not allowing maybe a, the GPS that's on my phone, you know, to follow me on my phone and, and do that without a warrant and get into my phone without a warrant. Do you know what I'm saying? It just is like another step in the evolution. Well, that's right. And, and we it's hard to guess where technology will go. And, of course, uh, the GPS in your phone is used right now for a lot of other things, including uh, marketing. And one of the other things that uh, I talk about in Privacy the Lost Right is the the fact that people will voluntarily give up a lot of their information and a lot of their location. Uh, there are all of the new fun devices that the kids have and would will you share your location with me will you share your and 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 kids do it and it's it's uh without thinking so your statement that is just the next step for government to say well we can know where they are because the gps on their phone right right and and you know when you're talking about that people do it without thinking i think they do it without information I mean, a lot of kids and a lot of adults uh, will jump onto some technology because it is very cool. <laughs> it's fun. It does some things that they want to do, but they don't know the dark side. They don't. They don't have that information. I, I and and the best example I can give is one time I was um, on face starting to use Facebook, and luckily my daughter was working at my office, and she was um, you know thinking of going to, to law school at the time, and. She used Facebook, and she was very adamant about what we were doing on Facebook, and I was adamant about let's do the privacy policy, let's make sure that we don't put up anything, and we're very careful. And one of my clients from many years ago who's in Ohio who was a victim of identity theft wrote me a really cute email and put a little smiley face at the end. So I, it wasn't an email, it was just, you know, on Facebook. So I responded, and I just clicked on that that little Facebook face and she said to me mom do you realize that you just downloaded an app that they're collecting information about you so when you say people don't think i think people don't understand it's very it's not transparent it's um it's quite insidious what what is going on behind the scenes would you well it's 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 definitely good to get advice from our kids (laughs) because They they seem to understand it a lot better, but at the same time, they seem to ignore it. Uh, there, there was an article that described the fact that kids are exchanging passwords as part of their their friendship. Yeah. So yeah. You you and I are close friends. So here, I'll give you my password. That's right. crazy. Yes. Yes. Uh, people, and we've seen all the tragedies associated with kids sending pictures and sexting and then all of a sudden somebody doesn't like anybody anymore and they right. post, post that picture and 
the emotional and personal damage is substantial and permanent. Or, yes. And I just, people just have to be aware. Yeah, and I think that a lot of it really is not transparent. And, and that, I think, is the part that really upsets me. If you choose to do something stupid... <laughs> I guess you'll have to reap the, you know, the consequences. But if you don't choose it, if it just happens and you don't realize, I think that's the travesty. But let's talk a little bit more about your book. I'm speaking right now with Professor John Mills, who um, wrote this wonderful book called Privacy, the Lost Right. So in your book, you talk about global, the global nature of privacy intrusions in your book. And with the internet, a person in America can intrude on a French person's privacy without even leaving his kitchen table, right? <laughs> it's, it's a spectacular capacity to intrude anywhere. Yeah. So, um, so, so the result is, you know, what you call libel tourism. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the laws like in France, like the European Union and you know, how are some of these privacy laws different in different countries? The EU is much more willing to hold uh, publishers, blogs, or others uh, liable for uh, intrusions. It, it's just a different approach. Um, the EU has placed a very high premium on what you would call, quote, personal dignity, and we place a very high premium on free speech. Yes. So when it's a close contest in the United States, free speech wins. Uh, when it's a close contest in the EU and some other places, sometimes privacy wins. That uh, So what happens is if a person is, say, slandered in two different places or, or, or globally in a global publication, they may lose in the United States, but win elsewhere. I mean, there, there are examples that related to California, the Wall Street Journal, Australia, where somebody lost a libel suit in the United States and then won it on the very same facts in Australia because it was available in both places. Interesting. That's something. So, um, so they don't have like any. You don't take it to the Hague or anything like that. <laughs> no, they're just looking for it's. It's it's probably the the big picture of forum shopping. Yes, it's yeah. somebody who uh, has been wronged or harmed or believe they have been uh, find a better forum. Yes, and there are places in. Uh, Europe and Ireland, and uh, sometimes some of our celebrities have mm -hmm. forum shopped and won in other places. Yes. And when something gets put up on the Internet, it's worldwide. So uh, I, I could imagine that this could be something that is um, really quite expensive for for whoever is putting that up, if they know who it is, right? Well, it, it is. It's, it's, it's both... Uh, a problem and, and scary for people who publish and scary in a sense to people who are victims uh, of those publications because you don't know where it's going to show up and in a number of places you know it's going to be protected in some places it's not right so it's the, the new world because of the internet and as you're describing it since it can happen anywhere um you may not be aware of it, but some people are. 
and if they are, they may find a jurisdiction they may give that may give them a recovery for an intrusion. Right. Well, when we're talking about different locations, how about location-based marketing? That's a real hot trend with companies like Facebook, Twitter, Foursquares. They're they're all incorporating this kind of location-based marketing into their platforms. They're making money about it. So what are some of the unique challenges that's posed by location-based marketing? Oh, as, as you were describing earlier, the, a GPS put on a car followed by uh, police or the government is just location-based marketing gone wild because you're walking around with a GPS with your cell phone, and if you walk by uh, your favorite shoe store or your favorite coffee shop, uh, it's, very, it's possible to know you're there and to send you a coupon and say, well, walk inside, get 20% off a latte, which a lot of people say, hey, that's great. And half of my class, when we talk about this, say, I love this idea. Sure, I'll use it. My son would love it. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's, as long as it's on your side and as right. long as you're getting discounts, everybody loves it. But you just have to keep in mind, as we're, we're talking about, where the technology goes and, and where it can go wrong. And if it's possible for a marketer to get that information, then it's possible for somebody else or possible for someone that you don't want to get it, or possible for the government to, to wrongly use it. but And to wrongly profile you. And to profile you. Yes. You, you could be easily profiled by your location. Yes. And profiled by what you're purchasing. And profiled by what you're purchasing. And uh, one of the strong driving forces behind... Uh, finding information about individuals is advertising. I mean, obviously, advertising is a huge business, and they are—they know they're better off if they target you. So, it's whenever you and I get those uh, when we go to a website, and we're very surprised by the fact that all the books look like they're something we ought to be interested in. Yes. Uh, well, they are yeah. books we ought to be interested in. <laughs> Right. I mean, I'm not too upset when Amazon, when I get on Amazon and they go, oh, Mari, you might like these books on privacy. You know, they know that I bought all these books on privacy and they they cater to me. And, you know, I already have a relationship with them, so I'm okay. What what I think scares me more is if if someone contacts me who I don't know and offers me something specifically for me. You know, I like the idea of opting in right. rather than opting out. It's my choice. But uh, that is, doesn't seem to be the way in this country, is it? Well, you may, you may have had uh, your information sold to somebody else who is marketing a product and based on a profile that may or may not be yes. accurate. Yes, and uh, the the accuracy of profiles is really suspect because uh, somebody like uh, you or somebody like me who does a lot of research on privacy, we go to a lot of sites that are that are just research. Exactly. And if somebody tracked all those sites, I don't know what they'd think. <laughs> well, you know, I, Beth Givens, who's the director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, is a good friend of mine, and I'll never, I'll never forget. 
when she told me about a woman that called her at the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse who was so upset she had miscarried at a hospital and apparently they sold all of her information so she could not get these companies to stop sending her offers for diapers, for, mm. you know, baby clothes, for baby infamil. Oh, it was just, could you imagine the emotional distress from this after she just miscarried? So uh, that's the kind of errors that are truly horrific. It's a disconnect in human perception because that uh, computer that sent that information didn't know not to do that. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, about 10 years ago, some paparazzi were found guilty of false imprisonment by a California court, and the victim was our former governor, who's had some <laughs> some interesting things that he's done in, in, in recent years. But um, he later became our governor, and while this took place 10 years ago, what do you think represents an upper limit on the boundaries of protecting celebrity privacy. We all found out about his, his um, you know, child out of wedlock. And what about that? It's an extension of the question of what's newsworthy. And, of course, in our country, uh, we've decided that public figures have a lower uh, threshold of privacy. And we just have to here decide whether we accept that as a general principle because that isn't true. I mean, there are... In other countries, um, there's a great example in Germany, and I discuss in a chapter of The Lost Right that uh, Princess Caroline had pictures taken of her with her kids at a restaurant where she was clearly wanted to be in a private place. Now, that's a no-brainer in the United States. Of course, that's something you can publish. Right. Well, they said no. Mm-hmm. And said so she's not acting as a public person. She's she wants to be private, and uh, th- they said that was not a proper use of the the press privilege. Now, clearly, uh, we don't necessarily want to go that far in the United States because we particularly want to bend over backwards and have information about uh, our public figures, and particularly governmental figures. So, probably not going to change. That uh, the the press is, will be accorded enormous discretion. Yes. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so my last question, because I think this is important, John, is can privacy intrusion is seem it's really become vast now in our in the new global culture. So, can you tell my audience just three things that we can do to mitigate some of the harms that we've discussed in this past half hour? I would say first. Be aware and don't disclose everything about yourself. Don't answer all those questionnaires. Uh, don't volunteer information and be aware where you are sending information. Number two, you ought to know yourself on the Internet. That is, research yourself. Find out if there are inaccuracies. Deal with them. And number three, if there is an intrusion, as there has been on some of these families, whether it's by press, individuals, friends, blogs, report it, deal with it, Uh, don't let it go, because we need to have a culture that stands up for, for privacy rights, and everybody needs to do that as individuals. 
Well, thank you, Professor John Mills. This book is great. Let's just say it again, Privacy, The Lost Right, and they can get that on Amazon, right? Yes, they can. And we will have you back again, and I hope I get to meet you sometime. You're on one side of the country and I'm on the other, but we'll have to meet soon. You're terrific. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll be seeing you soon. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Also, visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. You can see our upcoming guests. You can listen to archived interviews and write us what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 